Welcome, ladies, to our first live event teaching of the new season. This is season five for the live events, with a conversation continuing in season two of the Grace Gathered podcast. Join us in welcoming our guest, Lana Lampkin, as we begin to talk about grace upon grace. We hear from Lana how God's grace sometimes shows up in ways we don't expect, and we are transformed by it when we realize that we only get to live because someone else died. Good evening. I am so thankful to be here. Um, Grace isn't something that we always pay attention to, is it? I think we take it for granted sometimes, so what I'm gonna ask you to do right now, just want you to take a deep breath and let it out. That was grace. We don't know from day to day how many more of those we're gonna have. Um, God never promised us another one. So each one we take is a gift, and it is his grace. Um, I am going to be looking at my notes a lot tonight because I have a very long, in-depth story, and I'm an extrovert, so I will talk your leg off, so I will stay on track. (laughs) Um, I am alive today because of someone who decided that they, y'all, I'm going to (laughs) cry, that they would um, check that little box and their driver's license and donate their organs. Um, Let me take you back to 2020. Don't y'all wanna go there again? (laughs) It was the best year ever, wasn't it? Um, No matter what happens, we are with you. God spoke those words to me on April 30th of 2020. I remember that day because that's the day that I was taken to ICU put in a coma, and placed on life support. To most people, 2020 is just the year of the pandemic. But to me, it's much deeper than that. Thank you. It will always be the year that God showed me grace and gave me a miracle. I learned a valuable lesson. I'm not in control. As much as I want to be, as much as I thought I was, I'm not in control. I accepted Jesus when I was 14 years old, and even though I occasionally wandered, he's always been part of my life. I spent a lot of time trying to find out my purpose. Isn't that what we all wanna know? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? What's my purpose? I went to college, I tried accounting. That didn't really work out. Um, I moved to court reporting. That I was terrible at. (laughs) Those little machines, they're crazy. Um, I tried business law, and I finally decided maybe this corporate world wasn't for me. So I left college, and I worked at a grocery store for a while, and I got a little postcard in the mail. Doesn't take a lot to influence me to do things, clearly. It was for three months and travel school. And after you go to travel school, you get to be in this wonderful world of the travel industry, it's not so wonderful sometimes. Um, after, after 18 years in the travel industry, I started at the airport. That's how I came to North Carolina. I grew up in Southern Illinois. Um, at the age of 19, I moved out to Raleigh to work for American Eagle. And then that lasted 18 months. They're not nice at the airport. <laughs> and I went into the travel agency side and spent the rest of my 18 years there. Um, 
I then became just a mother and a homemaker. It was the best time of my life. Um, I got to raise that one and her sister. <laughs> then I decided I was bored. They went to school. They didn't need me anymore. I didn't have to be the, tra the taxi anymore for them. So I decided I would try promotional products. Trinkets and trash is what my husband calls it. The shirts that you have on, that was my business, <laughs> making shirts like that. Um, did that for a little while. Then I decided photography might be my thing. So I spent a couple years as a professional photographer. I worked with Make-A-Wish, which was incredibly gratifying. But then I found fitness. I started working out when I was 44 years old. Yes, that was a long time ago now. Um, I'm pushing 54 right now, if you wanted to know. Um, and then after I found out how fun fitness was and how much I could get back into my athletic state that I had been in in high school, I decided that I could help others do that too. So I became a professional, a certified personal trainer and a nutrition coach. And then that moved into buying our own gym. I was working out about three times a day, which was crazy. I was teaching small classes, small group classes, so I would lead, but I would also work out with them because I had an addiction to fitness. Anyone else in here have an addiction to fitness? It's kind of weird, I know. <laughs> it does happen. There are those out there that are like me. At the age of 50, I was the fittest I had ever been. And I say fit, I mean fit. I had a group of ladies that I worked out with that has um, lovingly been known now as the tribe. I was the youngest in our group at the time. We had one that came in um, a little bit later who was a little younger than me. So we were all over 50 and no one, no one in the gym would work out with us. <laughs> because we did the crazy stuff like the burpees and the jumping and the lifting and all those things. So I had finally, finally found my purpose. I knew what God had put me here for, to help people get fit. <clears throat> um, I loved the accolades. My love language is words of affirmation, so when you're telling me that I look good and I'm going to live for a long time and everybody wishes they could be like me, um, it did a lot for my ego, maybe a little too much. I didn't realize that fitness had become my idol. It was all I wanted to do. I loved it, morning to night, 8.30 in the morning, 8.30 at night, five days a week. I loved it. I had started this as a ministry, wanting to help people, and it turned into my God. I didn't realize it, though, until later, when I had to give it up. I wasn't sharing his goodness the way that I needed to. And in January of 2020, I had a little crud, Everybody know what the crud is? Have a little cough, go into the gym, cough all over everyone, which is a no, 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 not anymore, never consider doing that. <laughs> um, but my heart rate started to increase faster than it was, and I was struggling to breathe a little bit. I noticed that I was getting weaker. I couldn't lift the weight that I was lifting. I couldn't hold the plank as long as I was holding it. And my friends noticed it too, those women in that tribe. We wear heart rate monitors when we work out, so it's up on the screen for everyone to see. And they were saying, Lana, what is wrong? 
Nothing, I'm just overtraining. Everything that's happening is a symptom of overtraining and I'm just doing too much. So I need to slow down and take a break. So March came the mandate, right? Everything shuts down, including gyms. So I was kind of disappointed, but on the inside I was really kind of glad because I saw this as an opportunity to go home and rest. But I couldn't give up fitness, so I still had to work out four times a day, I mean four times a week by myself, and I still had to train all my group classes, and I took them on Zoom, and I would work out with them, and I would have to step out of the frame because I couldn't breathe. These were not the advanced classes that I was doing. These were beginning classes. These were classes with seniors. I couldn't keep up. But I still didn't know what was happening, and I still blew it off. I still just assumed I'm overtraining. So fast forward a little bit more into Easter. We were having an Easter brunch with our family. I had been exhausted. Let me back up just a minute. My, my legs, my knees, and my hands had gotten so swollen, I couldn't bend my knees to 90, 90 degrees. So I'm like, that's a little weird, <laughs> but maybe I'm just overtraining. <laughs> So um, I called my doctor, he did some tests. I couldn't see him face to face because it was COVID. I want you all to remember how often COVID comes around in this story. Um, but I went into the lab, he took some blood work, tested me for rheumatoid arthritis, wasn't that. Everything else looked great. Little low on the iron, not uncommon for me. Um, and then there's the two little markers that he thought, Maybe there's a little slight indicator of some kind of autoimmune disease, but I don't know. So I'm going to refer you to a rheumatologist. What was happening in 2020? COVID. The rheumatologist did not call me back because they weren't taking new patients. Why would they call back someone new? So now we're back to Easter brunch. I had to call it short. I love spending time on Zoom with my family, more in person, but at that time, Zoom. But I was like, I need to stop. I can't. I'm, I'm exhausted. So I went and laid down on the couch where I had spent a lot of my time recently. I had headaches. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't breathing well. You think it might have been an indicator that I needed to go be more serious about it when my husband put a chair in the shower so I could stand for the entire shower. But no. I kept telling my doctor, it's okay. I'm not that bad. I feel better today. He gave me some prednisone for the swelling. The swelling went down. It's good. I can breathe again. I'm feeling better. Every time I talked to him, I had that I'm fine <laughs> on my face. I grew up in Southern Illinois, so I'm fine is a thing. You know, like your house just caught on fire. It's fine. You just want a million dollars. That'll be fine. So here I am, as much as I hate that saying, telling my doctor, I'm fine. It's all fine. I'm going to be fine. Um, rash. I had a rash all over my body. I was playing it tough, and on April 20th, my husband said, enough is enough. You need to call the doctor now, and you need to tell him how you really feel. So I did. But I feel bad but I think I feel better than I did yesterday. And John took the phone from me and he said, she does not feel well. She does not 
at all feel well. She cannot walk from the, from the living room to the bathroom without stopping in the kitchen for a break. We don't have a big house. It's not that far from the living room to the bathroom. So he said, I'm going to call ahead to um, the respiratory clinic, you know, all those makeshift, makeshift COVID respiratory clinics, and we're going to test you for COVID. I'm going to call and I'm going to let the doctor know that you're coming so they know that this is serious. It's not just you're not just having a little sniffle or whatever. So we got to the COVID testing center, and the nurse met us at the car. She stuck her stethoscope in the window and said, let me listen just a little bit to your lungs. Why don't you pull over into that parking space, and I'm going to go get the doctor. He'll be right out. Oh, okay. So the doctor came out, stuck his stethoscope through the window. Do you need a wheelchair? Because we need to go inside. No, I'm fine. I can walk. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. So we go inside. Clearly, you didn't go inside respiratory clinics in COVID, right? And when I walked through the doors, I could see every doctor and every nurse knew that there was a problem because I was walking in to a respiratory clinic during COVID. We got in the room. The doctor got one of those little oxygen saturation monitors that as a personal trainer, you would think I would be familiar with, but I'm not. I've never seen one. They don't teach you about oxygen saturation as a personal trainer, which is crazy. Um, put it on my finger. He looked at the number. His eyes got about as big as saucers, and he went, I will be right back. And he stepped out, and he went and got another doctor, and they came in the room. And he said, Mrs. Lampkin, we have an ambulance coming for you to take you to Novant, Maine. We're going to get some x-rays, and you're going to get in that ambulance. And I said, well, my husband's right outside. Can't he just take me? No. You don't understand. Your oxygen saturation is at 69%. Regular oxygen saturation is 95 or above. They start to worry in the 80s. You don't walk into a respiratory clinic at 69%. So you wonder, how is it possible that I was able to walk? Well, keep in mind, I was extremely fit. I did aerobic exercise every day. I was so cardiovascularly fit that my body was used to being under immense pressure. It didn't notice. So I was, I was able to do that. And um, after I asked him if John could take me, we went in, got the x-rays. X-rays are not fun anyway. I've become an old hat at them now. I get them often. I probably am glowing. <laughs> um, so you walk up to, for a chest x-ray, you walk up to the x-ray machine, you put your hands out. And then they tell you these, these words. It's always lovely to hear when you can't breathe. Now I want you to take a deep breath and hold it. And then they walk. <laughs> I'm going, hold it, okay. And then they click, okay, you can put your hands down. Now turn to the side, put your hands over your head, take a deep breath and hold it. <laughs> I'm going, I can't hold it. I can't even take the deep breath that you're asking me to take. So we got through that. And I went outside. I had enough time to meet my husband by the ambulance door. He handed me my purse and my phone. That's all I took. I wasn't going to stay. And I kissed him on the cheek, and we said goodbye. That's the last time I saw my husband for about 64 days. I got in the ambulance, and 
They put the oxygen on my, on my face, and it was the most glorious thing I had felt in months. I had no idea how much I was suffering until that moment. So we went to the hospital. I spent a lovely 12 hours in the emergency department waiting for them to decide. COVID floor, not COVID floor. COVID floor, not COVID floor. I had, I don't know, four or five COVID tests that day. All of them came back negative. So they would scratch their heads and do it again. <laughs> and the doctors and the nurses, some of them would come in with just one little surgical mask on. Some of them would come in in full respiratory gear, like, you know, Monsters, Inc. <laughs> and I'm going, am I contagious or am I not? No one knew. Um, so I spent the next nine days, finally got to the COVID floor, I spent the next nine days back and forth. I'm feeling better, I'm not feeling better, I'm feeling better, I'm not feeling better. They couldn't keep my oxygen saturation up. Most days, if it was in the 80s, we were lucky. Um, a couple times it reached 90, 95 once. Um, there was a great celebration in all of heaven for that. Um, and then on April 29th, I finally was able to stand up out of bed for the first time. I mean, I had been out, but every time I step out of bed, my oxygen saturation would plummet and everyone would come running. It was disastrous. So I didn't have any privacy at all. I tell everybody, when you go to the hospital, you gotta check your dignity at the door because <laughs> none of them care. <laughs> so on April 29th, I got out of the bed and I stood there for a few minutes. I'm like, I feel pretty good. The alarms aren't sounding. I think I'll walk to the bathroom that I hadn't been able to see inside. I, I could see it, but I had not been in it. So that was my goal the whole time, get in the bathroom. So I got to the bathroom door and all those hoses and cables were hooked up to the wall and I was like, I can't go in. So I turned around and I stuck my tush in. And then I texted everybody that I knew, I went to the bathroom door. I made it all the way to the bathroom door. I'm coming home soon, I'm coming home soon. It was April 29th. April 30th, I was taken to the ICU. I, I was, before that, I was taken down for a CT, an MRI. I had a wonderful respiratory therapist. His name was Willis. Um, he was God's grace. I remembered his name easily because my maiden name is Willis. We established very quickly that we were brother and sister in Christ. He would come and check on me on the days that he, I wasn't even in his rounds. He would come and check on me. We had a funny little thing about some mustard. Um, I needed it. They only sent me mayonnaise. I didn't eat mayonnaise. I was too fit to eat mayonnaise. I only eat mustard. So he ended up bringing me a pack of mustard. And debate was back and forth. Can she make it through an MRI? They didn't know. Willis said to the doctors, if you will get her down there quickly, get her on wall oxygen, I can get her through it. Okay. So we call down there, we make sure everything's ready and set, so we just roll her right down there, roll her into the room and into the MRI and we'll be done. So we did, got in the wheelchair, little tank of oxygen. The difference in the oxygen from the wall and from a tank is the wall oxygen is blown up your nose. <laughs> The one from the tank just kind of trickles in. So we get down there, ready to go into the MRI, and we stop in the hall. They're not ready. Okay, I can't breathe. <laughs> I sat in the hall with my hands over my face, 
and I prayed, God, don't let me die in this hallway. And as I was praying, I felt someone touch my arm, and it was, it was Willis, and he said, you hang in there. I am going to get you through this. You just hang in there. And he stood up, and he told those doctors, you get her in that room right now, or she is going to die. And so they did. Fortunately, I was able to get in the MRI, got on that wall oxygen, and felt like, oh, thank you, God. I'm going to make it. As I was in the MRI, I just laid there and prayed. And I heard my mom singing, Jesus loves me. And I just laid there in that. And as I prayed, I was like, God, if today's the day, take me quick. But I don't want to die. And he said to me, no matter what happens, we are with you. He didn't promise me that I was going to live. He didn't make any promises like that. He just promised me that no matter what happened, that he was with me. So I was taken to ICU after the MRI. They laid me on my stomach. Anybody hate being on their stomach as much as I? And then you can't breathe, and they want you to put your face in a pillow. <laughs> but they say that the best way for your lungs to work is when they're laying flat, down, face down. Um, I spent some time there. I talked to my husband on the phone. They gave me some medicine that wiped me out, thank goodness. So I finally was able to rest a little. But then they came in with this news. Mrs. Lampkin, you need to be on a ventilator. A ventilator? Yesterday I was going home, and now you're telling me I have to be on a ventilator? I don't want to. They're like, you don't have a choice. So I said, let me call my husband. I will let you have a phone call to your husband, but it has to be brief. Okay, so I called John. I said, they want to put me on a ventilator, and I don't want to do this. And he said, I know, baby, but you have to. That's the last thing I remember. Um, a few hours into the evening, they called John. They, being the doctors, called John and said, the ventilation is not enough. In order for her to live, she needs to be put on ECMO. ECMO is a machine that does the work for your lungs. I was at Novant, Maine, who had ECMO available, but they had it available for heart patients, not lung patients. So I was cannulated through my groin and kept alive. Um, the doctors, after they got me on ECMO, called John and said, we were successful. Do you have family? Yes. Do you have children? Yes, we do. Are they local? Three of them are, but our youngest is at, at, in Raleigh at NC State at school. Are you telling me that I need to have her come home? Yes, I think that would be the best. So, John got on the phone, he called my mom, he called my, my girls, and rushed Lauren home in the middle of the night. Her friends prayed with her, for her, for me, as she drove, so she'd stay awake. Her sister helped her pick out things to bring home. Things to the point of, Lauren, I don't wanna think about this, but do you have anything to wear to a funeral? 
She said, yeah, I think I do. So she packed her bags and she came home. During this time that I was in a coma, they finally diagnosed me. I have, um, I have myositis. They diagnosed it as dermatomyositis because I had a rash. And the, derm the dermo part is from the rash. But myositis is an autoimmune disease that's very rare. And it attacks the, um, your major skeletal muscles. So quads, glutes. Let me just say, I've been working on my glutes for like a year and a half. They were finally, I never had a good round bottom, and they were finally popping. <laughs> Myositis took them, <laughs> took them. Um, I also have a very rare antisynthetase syndrome called anti-PL7. That's what took my lungs. Um, I don't know if the lovely pictures, I don't think I put a picture up of um, my lungs. If y'all want to see that, it's, it's in, the, in a book that I'll share with you later, and it's also I'll be happy to show it to you. I have not been able to find pictures of lungs that were as bad as mine. I've looked up other lung transplant patients, and I can't find any that were as bad. Um, so anyway, they diagnosed me with that. They called Duke and asked if, they, if Duke would take me as a lung transplant patient, because they knew that if I didn't get new lungs, I wouldn't live. Duke said no. We don't know why. We don't know if it's because I was so sick that they didn't think I was going to make it. Um, but the doctors at Novant fought really hard and explained to Duke, you don't understand. The only organ in this woman who, that's not working are her lungs. Her kidneys are great. Her liver is great. Her heart is great. Everything about her is physically capable of doing it. It's just her lungs. So there's speculation that maybe when they called them back a week later, that they went, she's still alive? Send her over. But there's also speculation that the amazing surgeon that I had rounded on, and he's one of the top surgeons in the world, and he, take, he takes risks that other surgeons won't. So we don't know what, which way it goes, but either way, it's a great story, right? Um, so I was airlifted to Duke on May 12th. And when I arrived at Duke, I was immediately taken in for surgery to move the cannulation to above my lungs into my chest, where it should have been. Um, my surgeon said, they weren't doing you any favors, but they saved your life. Um, because they did the best that they knew how. Had I known that I was going to need to be on ECMO, we would have went to the other hospital in Charlotte, where they do lungs. Um, so after that, they also took the ventilation and turned it into a trach. So I have a lovely trach scar. Um, you can tell my voice is kind of scratchy. I'm really quite jealous of all of you who can sing because I lost my singing ability. There's no vibration left, <laughs> so I can't sing. Well, I can, God likes it, but no one else does. <laughs> um, so then I was brought out of a coma and I was told that I needed a lung transplant. Last thing I remembered was I was gonna be on a ventilator and I was gonna be better and go home. So they do what they call a lung assessment score. And you'd go through a bunch of tests. It's very, uh, very in-depth. It's a five-day thing. You go and get all your organs looked at. They test your, your psychological, um, how psychological prepared you are for a transplant. And mine, my score, even though I couldn't take all of the tests that were required, my score was 90, 
which put me in the top 5% of the U in the U.S. for the need of lungs. My doctor has told me if I had been able to take all of those tests, it probably would have been more like 95. Um, so I was listed for a lung transplant on May 20th. And on May 25th, five days later, God used that other human being to save my life. I had told my husband two days earlier that God told me my lungs were coming. You have to remember how much medication I was on. <laughs> my, my husband was like, oh yeah, did he really? <laughs> like, yeah, he told me my lungs were coming and they would be here in just a few days. And they were. I don't know anything about my donor. I wrote to the family at six months after my transplant and didn't hear back from them. It is their priority whether they contact you back or not. Um, but I didn't hear back from them. But I know how excited my family was to know that I was going to be able to have a transplant. And I was excited too. But you have to understand how hard it is to know that the only way you are going to live is that someone else is going to die. The lungs that I received, we were told, were younger, and they didn't have to be trimmed, pruned. Most of the time, they have to prune lungs to fit within your chest cavity. They didn't have to prune my lungs. As you can see, I'm not a very big woman, so I often wonder if my donor was a young girl, maybe a teenager. So as a mother myself, I wondered what her mom was going through. It seems so easy, doesn't it, to say yes. And again, like I said, to check that little check and fill in that little heart on your driver's license and go, yes, give that away. Give it all away, use it all. But someone's left here behind to make that happen. Even as much as you wanted, it cannot be easy on the family. And I knew that. Um, taking our best guess, I had probably dropped to about 75 pounds before I left the hospital. I went in at a very muscular 121. And when I saw my body for the first time after being somewhat unstoned, I looked at my calves and I went, I have nothing left. All of the years that I put into that fit fitness, it's gone. But I'm going to get it back. I couldn't hold a phone. My cell phone, I couldn't pick it up. I couldn't brush my own teeth. They gave me a pediatric paddle to call the nurses because I couldn't push the button. I realized later how easy it was to push the button, but I literally would just flop my hand on that paddle. They would barely touch it and people would come running and I'd struggle to get to it. Um, I had to have someone for everything. I had to have someone to help me roll over, sit up. I had to learn how to walk again. So phys physical therapy was rough. And in the ICU, the best thing that you can do when you get a lung transplant is get out of bed and walk. And not saying that my physical therapist in the ICU wasn't fa fabulous. He diagnosed when I was going to go home before the doctors even did. Um, but he was pushing me in the wrong way, and I didn't like him. <laughs> 
So I did what he told me to do for the most part, but I didn't like him. Um, so I went after some time after my lungs were arrived and got to the point where I could be off of the trach, um, where I could breathe on my own and not have to have the assistance of machines. They moved me to what is called step down. And God, by God's grace, I got two glorious uh, physical therapists and occupational therapists who were both fitness buffs. <laughs> so they understood when I said, how can I walk if I can't have enough muscle in my legs to stand? So can we work on doing some exercises in the bed to help me get strong so I can get up and walk? So they agreed with all of that, and we made that happen. Um, that trach that was removed wasn't completely removed for a long time. There's a whole story about that that I won't get into. It's quite funny now. It wasn't funny at the time. To the point where I told the doctor, put a tie on your neck and wear it for 24 hours a day and see how it feels, even when you're showering. Um, before I could be released from the hospital, I had to walk 18 laps around the unit halls. It might as well have been 1,800 miles. There were times when I'd come back to the room and just go, I'm never leaving Duke. And then my husband calls and says, okay, I gotta come to Duke and stay there, so when you get out of the hospital, we have to stay in Durham so you can do your physical therapy and all of that. And I got this great house. And he sent me a picture. Y'all, you could not get in this house without going up steps. I was like, what are you thinking? <laughs> he did that on purpose, by the way. So I had to immediately start working on stairs. Funny story about that, too. The short version is, a very tiny physical therapist who was smaller than me, who was eight months pregnant, and we're going up the steps, and I fell in her lap. So here we are in the stairways of Duke Hospital. I'm crying because I'm humiliated, and she's got me and the baby full. <laughs> her lap is full. We made it through. She did help me um, get to a point where I could go up those steps. On June 24th, that's not quite a month after my lung transplant. The um, Duke uh, lightened the restrictions at the hospital, and my husband was finally able to come be with me. He had seen me while I was at Novant because I was considered end of life, and he and my daughters were allowed to come and be with me. Um, but I hadn't seen him since April 20th. The best thing about April, June 24th, it's our wedding anniversary. So that, again, was a little bit of God's grace. He visited me every day. He, he learned how to care for my wounds, and he managed all my medication. At the time when I left the hospital, I was taking 38 pills a day. Luckily now, I'm down to 27, and that will be the number that I stay at. Even more fortunate than that, most of those are um, supplements. Magnesium, calcium, fish oil, all the things that those eight or nine terrible medicines deplete from my body. I was released from the hospital, surprisingly to the doctors, on July 3rd. They thought I would be there until at least August. I got out of the hospital on July 3rd. Um, we went to rehab. I had to walk a mile in rehab before I could go home. And I had to get up from the ground without any help. I mastered that pretty easily. The mile took a little bit longer. Uh, my doctors had told us to expect to be in Durham until at least October. Not me. 
August 8th. He said, why August 8th? I went, sounds like a good day. So August 6th, I finished rehab and we were able to come home. Everything was headed in the right direction. My pulmonary tests were coming back. My pulmonary function tests were coming back like a 14-year-old boy. I was climbing mountains with my tribe. I was doing all the workouts that I did before. I was jumping. I was boxing. I was lifting. And then in April of 21, not quite a year later, my pulmonary function test started to decline, and I went into chronic rejection. There are two kinds of rejection. There is acute rejection, which can be treated, and there's chronic rejection, where everybody just kind of goes, we don't know why, but your body is trying to get rid of your lungs. And there are a couple things that we can do, and if they don't work, you need to be prepared for a second transplant. I didn't want the first one. I certainly didn't want the second one. So in October of 21, I went through the pre-evaluation for the second transplant because I was still declining. I had started photophoresis. It's a treatment where they remove as many white blood cells as they can from your body and treat them and then put them under a UV light and then put them back into your body. Um, I had been doing that, started um, every week, two times a week for six months. Then that changed to every two weeks for six months. And then after that, it's, a, it's monthly, so it's two days a week every month, and I'll do that until either I get new lungs or I pass away. Um, right now, I am stable, so it's been working. Like I said, in 21, I went through the pre-evaluation, which I don't wish that on anyone. It's awful. It's five days of tedious tests. And the doctors thought by March of 22, I would have new lungs. But here I stand, by God's grace, saying I'm stable. Slight improvements every once in a while, slight declines every once in a while. Of course, the declines make me upset and the, the improvements make me happy. Um, it's a roller coaster ride. Second transplants are harder than first transplants. The conversation that I had with my surgeon was, the bridge when you have a first transplant is very wide, and we have a lot of room on that bridge. The second transplant is very narrow, and we have to be very careful to stay on the bridge. And he started listing the things that could happen in the second transplant. But this sounded something like this. Your lungs are attached to your chest because we can't put them back in the way God puts them in. So it takes longer to get them out, so there's risk in that. There's always a chance that we won't find your lungs. There's always a chance that you could die during surgery, but you've been there and you've done that. And he'd say something else and he'd say, but you've been there and you've done that. So when you came to us on this really wide bridge, you were hanging off the edge and we pulled you back on. So I feel like now you're on a narrow bridge, but you're on very solidly, and we can keep you on that bridge. Um, life now. I still work out four to five times a day, I mean a week. Um, doesn't look the same as it used to. I try not to work out with my tribe because I'm embarrassed. <laughs> they love me. They tell me it's okay, but I know when we're walking together that they're strolling and I'm jogging. <laughs> Um, they're a great group of women, though, so they understand. So through all of this, my friends and family showered me with messages, cards, gifts, prayers. I had prayers of strangers, 
Uh, my husband started a group me to share all of what was going on because he had so many people contacting him. That group me spread around the world. I have friends who are missionaries, who knew missionaries, who knew missionaries. The group me had over 200 people on it alone. And that's not the people that they reached as well. Um, the scripture that God continued to send me even now, and I giggle when he shares it with me now. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. It's Isaiah 41.10. Sounds a little bit like no matter what happens, we are with you. So while I was in the hospital, God told me to write. I laughed at him. I don't write. <laughs> I do fitness stuff. I share nutrition stuff. I don't write. And if you would have told my high school English teacher that I was told to write, she would have laughed at you. <laughs> um, but I did. So I thought, you know, if God is calling me to it, how can I ignore that? So I started a blog. It started out as fitness, of course. Um, but as time goes on and I miss fitness and I cry over not being able to do what I do, I did ask him to take that desire away from me. Remove that idol and let me understand and know that I just need to do what I can do to stay alive and not to be crazy about it. And he has. So um, I wrote a seven-day devotional with the thing, some of the things that the Lord placed on my heart during this, um, while I was in the hospital and during this journey. And then he told me to write my story. I didn't know how I was going to do it. Um, the group me that John had started when we downloaded it had become 838 pages of Word document. So I had all of the conversations that had happened while I was in a coma. And through three years of working, I finally was able to release my book, and I ended up um, having 338 pages of things to say. I'm an extrovert. So, lessons that I have learned. First of all, control. I mentioned that at the very beginning. I have to look at life differently. I'm not invincible, and I never was. Believing you have control leads to an abundance of arrogance. My husband says it like this, the illusion of control and the arrogance that it breeds. Um, catastrophic things happen. I was fit. I was doing everything right. I would tell people, do what I'm doing. You can live as long as I'm going to live. <laughs> They're probably going, don't do what Lena was doing. I was messed up. Um, the only thing that we do have control over is our efforts and our attitude. So what is your attitude toward the things that you don't have control over? And what are your efforts in making yourself do the things that God is going to call you to do? Gratitude. No matter how dark the world seems, there's always something to be thankful for. We can lose sight of that so easily. I'm thankful for every single breath that I'm granted. I am thankful for my precious donor and their family for unselfishly giving me the gift of life. I'm thankful for my doctors and my nurses and my entire care team. 
I'm thankful for modern medicine and technology. I'm thankful for those around the world who lifted me up in prayer. My family and friends who love me unconditionally. PTSD is a real thing. It's really hard to live with someone who is like an emotional roller coaster. Um, the medicines do that too, so my husband's like, I'm sorry you're sad. <laughs> he doesn't even know what to say to me anymore. Um, I'm thankful for a God who, doors, who adores me, a Savior who died for me, and a Spirit who leads me. Um, my, it, my relationship now with the Lord is different than it looked before. It's more intimate now. I've always known him as my God. I've always known him as my Savior. I've known that he loved me. But throughout this whole thing, he was my father. My emotions run deeper. I cry more often, happy and sad tears. Things move my heart like they never have before. I'm more grateful for the days that I'm given. And I notice God's beauty around me and smile knowing that he knows that he is always present. I imagine most, some of that comes from being so close to, close to death. We all know our lives on earth will someday end, but it becomes very real when you look it directly in your face, in its face. And there's, there was time spent with Jesus in the time that I was in a coma. Um, and the third lesson, my purpose. I had been searching for so long for my purpose. Life situations and circumstances change. Responsibilities, expectations, your passions, those things change. Ultimately, what our purpose is, is to glorify God and to share Jesus with others. So I'm gonna embrace those responsibilities. That's why I'm standing here in front of you today. Um, I, I am just taking the road that he leads me down. And whatever, wherever I go and whoever I see, I tell them about God. And I tell them about my experience. It's not about how many followers you have on social media. It's not about whose lives we're touching. And it's, it, it's all about, I'm sorry, it's not about what's on social media. It's all about who is in your sphere of influence. Whether you have a grand stage like Beth Moore or Priscilla Shire, whether you have a smaller stage like I've been blessed with, or whether you just have a few friends, it's your responsibility as a believer to share Christ with them. I don't know why God chose me for this journey. I don't know why he didn't heal my lungs. I don't know why he decided that my body would reject these lungs. But I do know this. He's more powerful than I can ever imagine and is in complete control. He loves me more than anyone else does. He is steadfast. He always keeps his promises. And I know that he is using my story for a greater purpose than I could ever hope. He is a good, good God, and he wants us to take notice of him every day. Everything that's taken place in my life since 2020 is a gift. It is God's grace. Is it how I wanted it to be? No. I'm just grateful to be alive. So, everyone take another deep breath. And let that out. 
Be reminded of the grace that God has for you. Seek a deep and personal relationship with him. Remember he is in control, not you. Be thankful even in the dark times and use every day to his glory. Thank you. For just one second, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I don't know if they can hear you. <laughs> this is our response time, but um, I don't know. Jesus is just telling me we're going to do this. I'm going to pray over you. Thank you. And I know you want to pray over her with me. And so if you feel comfortable, just reach your hand out towards Lana. And you pray in your seat as I pray out loud. Jesus, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful woman. This soul who you said write your story, but you're writing her story, Lord what a beautiful story it is. So tonight, God, I'm asking for a miraculous healing in Lana's life. Lord, I thank you that she has been obedient, that she is sharing what you have done and the grace that you have bestowed upon her in her life. And we ask that you give her many days to continue living her purpose for you. Keep your heads bowed. I want to talk to you just a minute about a few of the things that I heard as Lana was speaking. It's easy to come to an event like this and hear someone's story and think, wow, I could never do that. I don't know how she's so brave. I don't know how she's so courageous. I don't know how she did that. It's not your story. That's her story. But you have one that God is writing for you. And you're not in control. Just like Lana said, I realized I wasn't in control. Neither are you. God allows things to come into our lives, but nothing comes into our lives that hasn't first been sifted through His loving hands. I also heard Lana talk about idols in her life. When you are his child, God says, there will be no other God before me. What's in your life tonight that you have put before God? Let it go. I also heard Lana talk about her community the power of the prayers of those friends, loved ones. We need community. We talk about that a lot here at the gathering. Are you at a place in your life where you need that kind of tribe supporting you and praying for you? We have discipleship groups here at Grace in fact, we've got about three or four that are just sitting over to the side. I keep saying, wait till the gathering's over. Are you ready for that tribe? It's ready for you. 
I also heard Lana say, there's always something to be thankful for. God is so good. He is so gracious. What are you thankful for today? And the last thing that she said that I think stood out to me the most, I heard her say, the only way she got to live was for someone else to die. Girls, that's our story. The only way we can live is because Jesus Christ died on the cross. So tonight, it would be wrong of me if I didn't give you an opportunity to say, I don't know this Jesus that you're talking about, but I want to. I want to live. If you are here tonight and you do not know Jesus, and you would like to know him on such an intimate level, the way Lana described, she knows Jesus. Raise your hand. Is there anybody here tonight that says, I wanna know Jesus like that? I'm always available afterwards. I would love to show you from the Bible how you can know this precious Jesus who died on the cross to give you life. Father, thank you so much for this special, special event we've had tonight. I thank you for this testimony and for your goodness and your grace that you demonstrated in Lana's life. Lord, I pray as each woman leaves here tonight, would she know you in such an intimate way that she has her eyes open and sees that you pour this kind of grace on her as well. In your holy name we pray. Amen.